0: I absolutely loved being in the Scouts when I was a kid. Hands up if you were in the Scouts. Hands up if you're still in the Scouts. Anyone? No. Uh, What I really loved about the Scouts was the danger of it all. You know, the fact that the health and safety executive would have blown a gasket if they'd seen any of the things that we were involved in when we were kids. And I, I, I really hope that the Scouts still do stuff that the health and safety executive would freak out about, but that's just my little bit of rebellion. And one time, I remember the minibus taking us to a, uh, the bank of a river and when we got to this bank of a river there were a whole bunch of life jackets and some big plastic barrels and some planks of wood and some rope and they basically said, you see that flag over the other side of the river, you've got to make a raft and then you've got to row across the river on your raft and you've got to capture the flag and then bring it back and the first team to do that is the winner. And so we all divided up into our teams and it was a kind of a furious effort and it was all a bit shambolic and none of the rafts looked like a raft but we all kind of pushed pushed our creations into the water and uh, pretty much none of the rafts even got halfway across the river and before too long there were just barrels and planks of wood floating in the river as well as loads of little kids kind of flailing their arms in the air with their life jackets up around their ears and then just as we were all flailing our arms around in the air suddenly we could hear this voice and uh, it was coming from behind us and it was one, two, three, four, like that and basically the scout leaders had made their own raft and they'd taken a little bit more care and attention over it and they literally, it was like a military maneuver, they kind of zoomed along past us all and they, you know, victoriously picked up this flag and waved it and then they came past us all and tried to pick up a few of us along the way and they got back to the other bank and we were just dumbfounded. like. How did they do that? We used all of our intelligence and, you know, all of our skills and we didn't even get halfway across the thing. How on earth did you do that? And they said, well, here's the thing. We paid really special attention to the design of the thing. Before we even started doing a single thing, we, we paid special attention to how it was going to work. And then, wherever there was going to be a bit where it's going to be under special pressure, we put a double knot in just to make sure, and we made sure that every single part of it would hold the weight, even in the fastest flowing current. And the point is that a family is supposed to be like a well-built raft. A family is supposed to be a place of safety and security and refuge through which we can or on which in which we can navigate the streams and the currents of life but of course the truth is that most of us who have families we don't ever stop to consider how is this thing bearing up or how could we do this better or or you know where could I put some special strengthening or pay special attention so that this thing makes it uh, through the journey and actually so therefore the truth is that so many rafts break up on the journey and don't make it to the end and so many families make it to the end but it's a really rickety raft and what we're going to see as we continue tonight in our series in the story of Joseph is we're going to see that Joseph's raft his family is now at breaking point and it's starting to break up in the water he's now 17 and so if you've got a bible with you Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going it's going to come up on the screen. Just out of interest, can you read that from the back? And have you got good eyesight? Not really. Okay, good. Just check him. That's font size 26, just in case you're interested. So, Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he, was, and he made an ornate robe for him. Where's the technicolor dream coat gone? Anyway, an ornate robe for him. When his fathers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it his brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bound down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the matter in mind. The truth is that this is a pretty rickety raft, this family is breaking up and so you can see in verse 4 for example the brothers hated him so much that they couldn't even speak to him, you know, and say a kind word. There was like this seething anger in their relationships all the time. And then in verse 8, it says that their anger was increasing over time, and they start asking him really barbed and nasty, sarcastic, um, rhetorical questions. And then in verse 11, it says his brothers were jealous of him. And the Hebrew word that's translated as jealous is a word that has real aggression in it. It's, it's, it's They were jealous to the point where they were on the brink of violence and we'll see some of the violence later on in the story. And so in a moment we're going to look at how did it get to this point, you know, how did this family get to the point where it was falling apart like this. But f- before we do that I just want to say a quick word to the young people. Now Who am I to say you're not a young person, right? So so if you consider yourself to be a young person, then this is a word right for you just now. In the midst of a messy life, Joseph hears from God. And it's absolutely clear that he's heard from God. In fact, he has two dreams, and the second dream serves to confirm what God had already said in the first dream. And it's the same thing that happens to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has two dreams, and Joseph says to Pharaoh, the reason you've had the second dream is to confirm what's happened in the first dream. So it's absolutely clear he's heard from God. But the commentaries that I read say, well, he didn't deal with it very well. You know, he he was arrogant. He was full of pride. He was totally insensitive. He just lorded it over his brothers. He would say, you know, exactly what God had said to anyone who would listen and it was totally inappropriate and the commentators just say, well, what do you expect? He's 17. That's what 17-year-olds do. And what I want to say to you if you are 17 or thereabouts is what do I expect? Well, I expect an awful lot more than that because actually... There are loads of examples in scripture of young people who pursue godliness and humility and are not insensitive or proudful or prideful or arrogant. They're the very opposite. They're examples. And in fact, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who's a young man, probably about the same kind of age as that, and he says this, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. So God is not saying to you, oh well, that's just what young people do. He's saying set an example for everyone else in the way that you live your life, the way that you pursue God with all of your heart. There are loads of examples of young people who do that in scripture. It's just that Joseph isn't one of them. Let me just put it another way. It's absolutely possible to, have, to live with genuine dreams from God and just not be the person who is ready to inherit those dreams. It's absolutely clear from the story that Joseph expects... uh, for these dreams to come to pass straight away. You know, he's expecting, okay, now I've had the dreams, now God said that that's going to happen, okay, let's just watch it unfold. And actually what happens is that God takes him through a whole series of really painful life experiences in order to get him to the place where he is ready to receive the promises of God. And so my suggestion to you, oh young person, and I consider myself to be a young person, is make sure that you yield to God's hand so that he can do whatever needs to be done in order that you can inherit the promises that he's given you. Uh, I love the story about Michelangelo, you know, the the artist and sculptor. It's said that when he created his kind of masterpiece, the sculpture of David that you can go and see, is a genuine one in Florence or is it just a fake one? The genuine one is too. I've only seen the fake one on the hillside there. Anyway, uh, he's created this amazing statue of David and supposedly when he'd finished it, people came up to him and they said, that's absolutely amazing what you've created. How on earth did you do it? And he said, well, I started with a big block of marble and I could see David in the marble and then I just chipped off everything that wasn't David. God is a master craftsman. He's an artist. And if we'll yield ourselves to his hand, then he will chip away everything that isn't you and make you more fully yourself than you've ever known in order that you will be able to be the person who can inherit his promises. That's the first thing. A note to young dreamers. Secondly, the critical importance of godly parenting. Okay, so this rickety raft... Whose rickety raft was it? Who did it belong to? Who had built it? Well, lots of commentators say from Genesis chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 50 is the story of Joseph. But that's not actually what this scripture said, was it? And actually what the writer of Genesis does is he divides his book up into sections and each section of the book of Genesis starts with this is the account of And so you see Genesis 2 verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 6, 9, this is the account of Noah. And it goes on and on like that. And then um, it said in our passage, this is the account of Jacob. So we might expect it to say, This is the account of Joseph, but it doesn't. It said this is the account of Jacob. Jacob built the raft. I think what the writer is trying to say is, this situation, this really messy situation, is in some way because of the way that Jacob had established his family. I'm not on Facebook, not not officially anyway. I mostly go on Taryn's Facebook account, and, and so... That's why sometimes when people pop up and they say, oh, hi, Taryn, Taryn disappears really quickly because it's not Taryn. But uh, anyway, so uh, mostly at the moment, if you go, if you go onto Facebook, Uh, and you're friends with people around our church then you'll see babies because people are having quite a lot of babies at the moment and so mostly we see those photos that the dads put on you know they're they're so proud of their new little baby they put on what I call the hospital bed photo you know the, the dad looks like he's just gone for a walk on the beach And the mum looks like she's just gone 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. And she looks absolutely knackered. And if she knew that he'd put that photo on, she would absolutely kill him. But there they are, holding their little baby together. And you can see it in their eyes, can't you? That they know that that responsibility is the greatest responsibility that they've ever had. The significance of the role of a parent, they know in that moment, God hasn't ever given me a greater responsibility than this. And I so want to do it right. Unfortunately, over time, what happens is our culture says, no, no, there are lots more important things than being a parent. You know, there's, uh, well, you're, you're the treasurer of the cricket club, for example. And uh, don't forget, you've got a very important job at the bank. And actually, what happens over time is I have loads of conversations with people, particularly mums, who I say, oh, what do you do? And they say, oh, I'm just a mum. You know, as if being just a mum was a bit like, well, I went down to the job centre and I had no qualifications and there weren't really very many jobs going and they said, well, there's literally nothing you can do except be a mum, so you better do that. It's like, oh, right then. But scripture actually says that the significance and the importance of the role of a parent surpasses everything else. And my prayer this week has been so much, Lord, those of us who are parents or those of us who will be parents, Lord, please help us to understand the weight of the call to parenthood. Please help us to understand the significance and the importance of that role. Has anyone here ever written a book? Anyone? Uh, um, Supposedly, if you're going to write a book, a fiction book, all you need to do is write the first three chapters. And once you write the first three chapters, you can send that off to a publisher, and you can say, here you go, here's the first three chapters of my book, and they'll tell you whether it's worth you carrying on writing the rest of the book, and whether they'll ever, you know, you'll ever stand a hope of being published. And the reason that they can do that is because in the first three chapters, you define the setting, and you create the characters, and you initiate the story. And as parents... It's like God gives us a pen and he says in the first few years of your child's life you have the opportunity to write the story, to initiate the story for that little person. And you have the opportunity to create the context and you have the opportunity to define the character or to help with the definition of character. And then over time of course we kind of wrestle with the pen for a while between you and the kids and then eventually the kid gets the pen and they get to finish off their own story. This is Jacob's story, this mess. Parenting is very important. Let me just say this though, and this is really important because some of you are parents of grown up children or children who are beyond the first few years. And the danger is that you start to um, follow my logic and then put it all in reverse. You know, so my logic says, if you um, create a rickety raft, then it's gonna be a difficult journey through life. But your logic, if you see it in reverse, says it's been a difficult journey through life, it must have been the way I created the raft, when actually there are lots more factors involved and it's a logical jump to say that you're to blame. Actually, often what happens is the current is really, really strong. And people make really bad decisions when the current is really strong. And so I just feel it's really, really important. I hate, I absolutely hate the thought that anyone would ever leave one of these little talks that we do carrying more burdens and feeling more guilt and feeling more, you know, wanting to, um, you know, carrying more of a heavy burden than when they came in And I really feel like there's a word for some people today to say, what's going on with your kids right now, it's not your fault. The other thing I want to say before we carry on with this parenting and family thing is that for a whole bunch of us, family is not easy. And uh, perhaps your raft broke up and disappeared when you were a kid. Or perhaps it's breaking up right now. Or maybe for some of us, we really wanted to have our own raft and put our own little kids on the raft, but it never happened. What I want to say to you is, for some of you, you'll be at peace with the situation as it is, and that's brilliant. But if you know that as I'm speaking right now, you're not at peace and that it's raising issues, please, please, you know, let's pray, let's, let's stand with you, and let's bring all of this stuff to Jesus, and number one, let's see if this situation won't change, and number two, let's see if he'll give you more peace than you have right now, and so later on, we'll just provide an opportunity to start that process, but obviously, we don't expect everything to always happen overnight, and so we can easily provide other opportunities to pray together and all of that. Okay, so with all of that said, uh, third point, the making of a rickety raft. How was it that Jacob ended up in a situation where um, his family was uh, falling to bits? Well, first of all, he left the Lord outside of his home. By this point in the story, Jacob has had three very significant encounters with God. So he's, he's been running from his brother Esau and he meets God. Uh, in fact, he has a dream. He lays his head down on a rock and he has a dream called Jacob's Ladder. And then um, a little bit later on, and we looked at it the other week, he um, has another encounter with God where he wrestles with God and um, that happens at Peniel. And then later on, he's called back to Bethel where, the, where he had the first encounter. Again, he meets God and this time... God says, I'm going to change your name, I'm going to give you a new name. You'll no longer be called Jacob, you'll be called Israel from now on. And I just want us to notice two things about those encounters. The first thing is, all of his dealings with God are outside of his home. And the other thing is, as far as I can see, he never talks about the Lord or his encounters with God with his kids. And it seems to me that so often as parents, we make these kind of mistakes. The first mistake is that um, we might go away to conferences and have amazing encounters with God. And we might go to church and really hear from God from time to time. But we never make our home the place of encounter with God. And the other thing we do is, we have kids and we really want them to grow up knowing the Lord, but we kind of delegate that responsibility to uh, the brilliant kids' work team, and the um, mad team. And we say, they're doing a brilliant job, they can bring up my children in the Lord. And we never say, no, no, my home is the place where we have spiritual conversations, where we talk about stuff that's going on. And My wife Taryn has been suffering with a bad back for years. And when our little girl was three or four, she came home from church. We all got home from church. And my little girl said to me, Daddy, why do we never pray for mummy's back to be healed? Well, it shouldn't be down to our kids to bring the Lord into our home. We have to make the same kind of decisions that Joshua made in Joshua 24, verse 15. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's up to us to decide this home will be a place where we encounter God. And we will pray, and we will ask God for things together, and we will receive the things that we've prayed for together. And we will make sure that this is a household that serves the Lord. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Or Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Parents, do not exasperate your children. That's harder than it might look. Uh, Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So Jacob left the Lord outside of his home. Secondly, uh, he didn't ever demonstrate love for his wife. Now, to be fair to him, he did have four wives, uh, which is excessive in anyone's book, but of the 13 children that he had, 11 of them grew up not knowing that mum and dad love one another. I don't run ever. Uh, um, I don't even do the Peter K dad run, you know, the kind of jogging on the spot, not, you know, going slightly slower than if I was actually walking thing. The only time I've run in the last few years is when my kids have learnt how to ride a bike. And uh, I love that moment, it's a very precious moment in a family, when a child graduates from a trike to a bike with stabilisers. And the great thing is that you can push them along really fast and they love it and they squeal with delight and then off they go into the sunset riding their bike, safe in the knowledge that the stabilizers will mean that the bike can wobble a little bit but it can't fall over. And the truth is, for us as parents, and I know we're not all parents here at the moment, for us as parents, the most stabilizing thing that we can do for our family is to love to love Our spouse. kids hate it don't they when the uh, parents show any kind of affection you know I remember when our kids were tiny little babies you know if Taryn and I would even hug they would be like jealous and just screaming and flailing their arms in the air and then after that point comes the point where kids are just really embarrassed and they're like oh Mum, dad stop it oh that's absolutely disgusting oh that's so embarrassing it's gross just stop that Kids absolutely hate it when their parents show affection to one another but they need it they need it they need to see their parents kissing in public they need to see their parents prioritizing one another they need to see their parents going on dates they need to see their parents affirming one another or speaking well of one another they need to see that their parents love one another Jacob didn't demonstrate that he loved his spouse or spice. Uh, thirdly, oh, that's good. People don't normally laugh at my jokes, so I feel really chuffed. I can go home a happy man. I might even have a glass of wine tonight. right? Uh, thirdly, he showed favoritism. The writer of Genesis is absolutely clear, actually, that the, the reason why this whole mess has been created is because Jacob gave more of his heart than he should have done to one of his children over all of the others. He sa- it says in verse 3, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And he makes this lopsided love clear to everyone in his family by giving Joseph this multicolored dream, technicolour dream coat and I'm always going to think of it as a technicolour dream coat some translations say oh it's a coat with long sleeves I mean how boring is that what did it say ornate robe no it's technicolour dream coat anyway he gave him this dream coat and, he, and Joseph wore it wherever he went and everybody knew daddy loves him more than he loves all of us Here's the thing, it's okay to love some things differently. It's okay to love dairy milk more than galaxy chocolate. You know, it's okay to love walking rather than running or to prefer going in a car to walking or going in a fast car to going in a slow car. It's okay to prefer meat to vegetables or sun to rain or hot to cold. It's even alright to prefer white to black, but it's not okay to love one of your children more than the others. And the truth is, of course, that some children are really easy to connect to. And, and, you know, like some kids, they just tell you what's going on all the time. And, and, uh, you know, you have a very affectionate and uh, easily um, accessible, is that a word, Uh, um, relationship. And other kids keep everything really hidden and you don't really know what's going on and you have to work harder to demonstrate your affection. And some kids need touch and some kids need notes and some kids kids need encouragement or affirmation but we have to love all of our kids the same and so we have to figure out how do we love our kids in a way that they understand and appreciate how do we tell our kids that we love them and in this story what we see is that Jacob didn't do that and favoritism is like a factory for making bitterness and resentment and jealousy on an industrial scale Next one, he bought big gifts. There's a pressure on parents to buy expensive things for kids, in our society in particular, and I can just imagine what was happening. You know, Joseph was saying, Dad, all the other kids in the school playground have got a multi you know, a technicolor dream coat. And, you know, just look at me standing in the line, queuing up in the playground, going going into school, and all the other kids have got their technicolor dream coats, and I have to go with this rubbishy old thing. And, you know, Dad, you are so mean. I'm gonna phone childline on you, because you're just so mean. And in the end, Jacob thinks, well. To be honest, I am at the office a lot, and I do feel quite guilty about that. So off J- Jacob goes to Hollister, and he goes into Hollister, and, and the music is deafening, and it's really dark in there, so he can't even see what the prices are, and he comes out with this Technicolor dream coat with Hollister all over the front, and he goes, there you go, son. The question is, does buying this extravagant gift for his son make for peace in their household? And the answer, of course, is no. By buying extravagant gifts for our kids, expensive gifts, I don't know whether you know, but the average price of a Christmas gift from parents to child in this country is 312 pounds. By buying big and extravagant gifts for our kids, we teach our kids that if they have expensive possessions, they have value and significance. And the greater the gift, the greater the value of the gift, the greater the value of the child. And of course, we all know that we would never teach our kids that. We would never say that with words, would we? But we say it with our actions instead. And of course, it's the very opposite of the teaching of Jesus. Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said this, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Our kids don't need extravagant gifts. What they need is uninterrupted quality time and undivided attention and gentle and nurturing encouragement. That's what they need. The last thing is, Jacob avoided considered confrontation. Um, This situation is a complete mess, and where's Jacob? Jacob doesn't intervene. He doesn't say, now hang on kids, let's just try and sort this out. He basically avoids all kinds of, or any kind of confrontation. Jacob says nothing. The only time it says that he rebuked his son was in verse 10, where Joseph tells him the dream that he'd had. He says, by the way, dad, you're gonna be bowing down to me as well. And uh, he's offended about that, basically. And so he, he doesn't address the issue at all. He never at any point says, your behavior is disgusting and we need to sort this out. In fact, in verse 11, it says, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And to be honest, I can really relate to Jacob because that's what I do. I keep the matter in my mind. You know, I internalize everything. And so I've learned pretty much that in our household, if I... Um, you see, number one I really like peace and number two I really want to be liked and so I avoid all kinds of confrontation and I just go into my little shell and I just keep quiet and I've learned that if I put my noise cancelling headphones on then the world is really quiet that's what I've learned Joseph, Jacob kept the matter in mind and yet he did nothing with it of course the, 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 the opposite of that is just as bad you know, it could have said Jacob kept nothing in his mind, you know, everything, every single thought that he ever had went straight through out of his mind and through his mouth at 100 miles an hour and 100 decibels, and that doesn't work either. What Jacob should have done was sat down with his wife, or should it be wives, and they should have prayed together, and they should have said, what should we do about this situation? And then they should have called a family meeting and said, kids, We need to address these relationships between you all. Let's just talk about this stuff. Let's get it on the table and let's get it dealt with. But he never does. Jacob was wrong. He should have addressed the issues that were at play in this family, and yet he never did. Proverbs 12, verse 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And so the truth is that Jacob's raft that he'd created for Joseph was really rickety because he had done all of these things. Let me just finish with this, and it's really important. There's a a story that I love about a a grandmaster chess player, and he went to go and play a tournament in another city. When he got to the other city, he had the afternoon off. So he went to the art gallery, and when he was at the art gallery, he was attracted to one particular painting, and it was a painting of a chess game. And so he was like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm a chess grandmaster, and that's a chess painting. And so he stood there looking at it for a while, and what it was, uh, was uh, on, w- on one side of the chess game was the devil, and he was leaning back in his chair, and he was roaring with laughter. And on the other side of the chess table was a young man, and he was, had beads of sweat all over his forehead, and he looked really worried. And the, the title of the painting was Checkmate. And the story behind the painting is that this young man had, um, was competing in this game of chess for his own soul with the devil, and he'd just lost. And the chess grandmaster said, Hey, could somebody bring me a chessboard? And so they brought this chessboard out and they put it in this art gallery just in front of the painting. And he arranged all the pieces just as it was in the painting. And he stared at it for a while. And then eventually this smile came over his face. And everyone was like, What are you smiling at? He said, I wish I could grab that young man by the scruff of the neck and say, There's still one more move on the board. And the point is, with God, there is always one more move on the board. And what you see in the story of Joseph is, first of all, things get a lot worse in this family before they get better. But at the end of the story, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph and his brothers are completely reunited and their relationship is completely restored. And that is only possible with God. But with God, there is always one more move on the board. And to be honest, we've seen it loads of times, over the last few years in particular, relationships that had seemed completely beyond repair, God just moving that piece, demonstrating the extra move, and suddenly everything is restored. We've seen it time and time, we've seen it in families, we've seen it in marriages, we've seen it between parents and children, we've seen it between brother and sister. And so I believe with all of my heart, you know, some of you I'm sure will be thinking, I just don't know whether there's hope for this situation. And the truth is that there is. There really is. And we'd love to pray for you later on if uh, you're facing a bit of a tight spot in some of your relationships. Why don't we stand?